Hello, this is R.J. Deacon reading the Supreme Court of the United States opinion in Tony Mays, Warden versus Anthony Darrell Dugard Hines on petition for writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, decided March 29th, 2021. This one was decided without argument, and there's no syllabus, but the uh, opinion is uh, only eight pages, I think, so we're just going to go ahead and read it. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, stay tuned to the end of the podcast. The Tennessee jury found Anthony Hines guilty of murdering Catherine Jenkins at a motel. Witnesses saw Hines fleeing in the victim's car and wearing a bloody shirt, and his family members heard him admit to stabbing someone at the motel. But almost 35 years later, the Sixth Circuit held that Hines was entitled to a new trial and sentence because his attorney should have tried harder to blame another man. In reaching its conclusion, the Sixth Circuit disregarded the overwhelming evidence of guilt that supported the contrary conclusion of a Tennessee court. This approach plainly violated Congress's prohibition on disturbing state court judgments on federal habeas review, absent an error that lies beyond any possibility for fair-minded disagreement. That's uh, Shin versus Kayer in uh, 28 U.S.C. section 2254D. We now reverse. Uh, again, that's a per curiam opinion. On March 1st, 1985, Hines boarded a bus traveling from Raleigh, North Carolina to Bowling Green, Kentucky. His girlfriend and her mother had given him the bus ticket and $20. Hines also carried with him a hunting knife concealed beneath his shirt. When the mother asked about the knife, Hines explained, I never go anywhere naked. I always have my blade. Um, that's a record in Hines. Hines' travels brought him to the outskirts of Nashville, where he checked into the Seabon Motel. Jenkins worked there as a maid. A few hours after Hines' arrival, the manager put Jenkins in charge of the motel and provided her with a bag of money to make change for departing guests. In the early afternoon, another visitor found Jenkins' body in one of the rooms. She was wrapped in a bloody bedsheet, and an autopsy later revealed several knife wounds, that included deep punctures to her chest and genitalia. Her money, wallet, and keys were missing, as was her vehicle. Around the same time, another employee saw a man leaving the motel in Jenkins's car. The employee tried to follow the vehicle, but it sped away. Later that afternoon, a group of travelers found Hines and the car, now broken down, along the side of the road, and they offered to drive him towards his sister's home in Bowling Green. During the trip, the travelers observed that Hines had dried blood on his shirt and was carrying a folded-up jacket. They also noticed that Hines seemed real nervous, kept contradicting himself, and talked a lot, at one point claiming that he had purchased the car from an old lady for $300 or $400. Hines told a different story to his family. His sister noticed the blood, and Hines admitted that he had stabbed somebody at the motel. Although he described the victim as a male employee who had assaulted him, for good measure, Hines physically demonstrated how he had knifed the supposed assailant. Despite his inability to pay for a bus ticket just a few days earlier, Hines purchased a barbecue grill and informed his sister that he had acquired a substantial sum of money. Family members also noticed that he had keys to Jenkins's car, which were on a distinctive keychain. According to Hines, he had taken the keys in a struggle with yet another man who had tried to rob him. Hines altered his tale again when he surrendered to law enforcement. Before the sheriff started questioning him, 
Heinz volunteered that he took the automobile, but he didn't murder the woman. But Heinz later changed his mind and offered to confess to the murder, if the sheriff could guarantee him the death penalty. The investigation turned up other physical evidence connecting Heinz to the crime. Police found Jenkins's wallet where Heinz had abandoned her car, and a search of his motel room revealed stab marks on the walls that were similar in size to the wounds on Jenkins's body. When an investigator asked Heinz about the damage, he identified the holes as knife marks. The jury heard all of this evidence at trial. It also heard testimony from the man, Kenneth Jones, who had discovered Jenkins's body. According to Jones, he knew the owners of the motel and had stopped by on, on the afternoon of the murder. Finding no one in the office, Jones had lingered outside before realizing that he needed to use the bathroom. He returned to the office, took a key, and entered the room. Heinz's counsel stressed to the jury this oddly fortuitous sequence of events, noting that Jones was fooling around at that motel. Noting Jones was fooling around that motel that Sunday afternoon, Jones seemed nervous and that Jones just happened to be present when there was a lot of something going on. The jury also heard discrepancies between Jones' account of finding the body and the timeline given by first responders, but it found Heinz guilty. The full truth came out several years later when Heinz sought post-conviction review in the Tennessee courts. In a new statement, Jones admitted that he was at the motel, neither by happenstance nor by himself, but rather in the company of a woman other than his wife. The duo had rendezvoused at the motel nearly every Sunday for at least two years, and Jones was well known to the staff. But when Jones and his companion arrived on the day of the murder, they found no one there to greet them. After waiting for a while, first at the motel and then at a nearby restaurant, Jones became impatient and helped himself to a room key from the office. Upon finding the body, he quickly returned to his vehicle, a fact confirmed by his companion, who watched through the room's open curtains as Jones entered and left. Jones then called the authorities, drove his companion home, and returned to the motel to meet the sheriff. The post-conviction proceedings also revealed that Heinz's attorney was generally aware of Jones's affair from the outset, yet had decided to spare him from the embarrassment of aggressively pursuing the matter. Heinz versus State. But despite Heinz's current insistence that this choice amounted to ineffective assistance of counsel, the Tennessee Post-Conviction Court found no prejudice. Um, see also Strickland versus Washington. The defendant must show that counsel's errors were so serious as to deprive the defendant of a fair trial. That's Strickland. The court stressed the strength of proof against Hines, and it dismissed as far-fetched that the trial counsel should have accused Jones of committing and self-reporting a grisly crime in a public place where he was known by the staff. Such an argument, the court explained, could have resulted in a loss of credibility for the defense. The court also observed that the emergence of a new corroborating witness, Jones's companion, further undermined any suggestion that he was the culprit. And though Jones' evolving story deprived the jury of all the facts, the court reasoned that his true purpose for being at the motel had little relevance to Hines' conviction or sentence. Sixteen years later, a divided panel of the Sixth Circuit disagreed. According to the majority, 
a better investigation could have helped the defense to credibly cast Jones as an alternative suspect or at the very least seriously undermine his testimony. For example, trial counsel could have claimed that Jones killed Jenkins to cover up his affair. Counsel might also have highlighted that Jones was planning to rent a room from Jenkins on the day of the crime, or counsel might have better stressed potential flaws in Jones's version of the events, such as discrepancies about the exact time he reported the murder. The majority further summarized that Hines had no clear motive for the murder, and it noted the absence of DNA or fingerprint evidence. Missing from this analysis, however, was the voluminous evidence of Hines's guilt. Among many other things, the majority disregarded Hines's flight in a blood-stained shirt, his theft of the vehicle and money, and his ever-changing story about stabbing and robbing various people on the day of the crime. Judge Kethledge dissented. In his view, the majority nowhere gave deference to the state courts. Nowhere explained why their application of Strickland was unreasonable rather than merely, in the majority's view, incorrect, and nowhere explained why fair-minded jurists could view Heinz's claim only the same way that the majority did. Judge Kethledge then reviewed all of the evidence ignored by the majority. He found zero reason to think that after investigation, counsel could have presented Jones as the real killer, and he explained that impeaching Jones would have been a waste of time because Jones had offered no testimony regarding Heinz's guilt. Heinz's legal theory is straightforward. A competent attorney would have presented the full truth about Jones's affair and blamed him for the crime. According to Heinz, this strategy would have deflected so much suspicion, or at least so undermined Jones's credibility, that counsel's omission created a substantial risk of a different result. That's uh, Cullen versus Pinholster. In fact, Heinz reasons that had he not fa been found with Miss Jenkins' car, Jones would have been the primary suspect. Um, that's brief in opposition. Our analysis is straightforward, too. Because a Tennessee court considered and rejected Heinz's theory, a federal court shall not grant a writ of habeas corpus unless the earlier decision took an unreasonable view of the facts or law. That's section 2254D. This standard is difficult to meet. See Harrington versus Richter. The term unreasonable refers not to ordinary error or even to the circumstances where the petitioner officers had a strong case for relief, but rather to extreme malfunctions in the state criminal justice system. In other words, a federal court may intrude on a state's sovereign power to punish offenders only when a decision was so lacking in justification beyond any possibility for fair-minded disagreement. Uh, there's an ellipsis in that um, last sentence uh, between justification and beyond any possibility. If this rule means anything, it is that a federal court must carefully consider all of the reasons and evidence supporting the state court's decision. After all, there is no way to hold that decision was lacking in justification without identifying, let alone rebutting, all of the justifications. Any other approach would allow a federal court to essentially evaluate the merits de novo by omitting inconvenient details from its analysis. Um, see Shin and see also Richter. The Sixth Circuit did precisely that. 
Nowhere in its 10-page discussion of Heinz's theory did the majority consider the substantial evidence linking him to the crime. His flight in a bloody shirt, his possession of the victim's keys, wallet, and car, his reoccurring association with knives, or his ever-changing stories about tussling with imaginary assailants. The court instead focused on all the reasons why it thought Jones could have been a viable alternative suspect. And rather than engage with the dissent's recounting of the evidence against Hines, the majority simply promised that it had carefully considered this proof before summarily dismissing it as not overwhelming. Had the Sixth Circuit properly considered the entire record, it would have had little trouble deferring to the Tennessee court's conclusion that Hines suffered no prejudice regarding his conviction or sentence. Again, the crucial question was not whether the Sixth Circuit itself could see a substantial likelihood of a different result had Hines' attorney taken a different approach. See Cullen. All that mattered was whether the Tennessee court, notwithstanding its substantial latitude to reasonably determine that a defendant has not shown prejudice, still managed to blunder so badly that every fair-minded jurist would disagree. That's Knowles versus Mirzance. It did not. The Tennessee court reasonably looked to the substantial evidence of Heinz's guilt, and it reasonably rejected the far-fetched possibility that Jones committed and self-reported a gruesome murder in the presence of a witness at a place where he was well-known to the staff. In light of this straightforward common-sense analysis, the Sixth Circuit had no license to hypo- hypothesize an alternative theory of the crime in which Jones became a suspect 35 years after the fact, much less rely on that fanciful theory to grant relief. Uh, there's a asterisk there, and that is, even on its own terms, there is little merit to the Sixth Circuit speculation that a jury who heard Jones's full story might have blamed him instead of Hines. After all, the story Jones told at trial was in many ways more suspicious than the truth. According to his initial count, initial account, Jones fortuitously stopped by the motel, hung around outside, and then stumbled upon the body, all without a witness to verify his actions. Um, similarly untenable was the Sixth Circuit's backstop, the theory that a more aggressive attorney could have changed the result by casting doubt on Jones's credibility. As an initial matter, this conjecture ignores that Jones's brief testimony about his discovering the body did not indicate that Hines was the culprit. Ample other evidence was what did that. Perhaps in light of this obvious disjuncture, the Sixth Circuit's analysis of why an attack on Jones's credibility would have been productive ultimately circled back to the majority's main assumption that Jones was a viable alternative suspect. Regardless to the extent Jones's credibility actually mattered, the jury had several good reasons to be skeptical. For example, his peculiar tale of discovering the body, the insinuation of Heinz's attorney, and the discrepancies between Jones's exact description of finding the body and the account of the first responders. None of these made a difference. The Sixth Circuit had no reason to res- revisit the decision of the Tennessee court, much less ignore the ample evidence supporting that court's conclusion. We grant the petition for a writ of certiorari and Respondent's motion to proceed in form of papyrus, and we reversed the judgment of the Court of Appeals. It's so ordered. It was a per curiam opinion, and um, 
Justice Sotomayor dissented. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support me, uh, I can be reached at roadscholar80 at gmail.com, or uh, you can find a support link in the show notes or find me on Patreon.